0: C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Marcus, a Christian, invited Joseph, also a Christian, over to his house for dinner. In the middle of the table was a large, beautiful ham. When Joseph walked in and took one look at it, he said, ham. Don't you know that Leviticus 11.7 says that ham is an unclean animal? I thought you were a dedicated Christian. What are you doing serving ham? Marcus said, I am a dedicated Christian. Don't you know that 1 Timothy 4.4 says that all meat is unclean and that you can receive it with thanksgiving? Sit down and don't be so obnoxious you think a debate about food is a little foreign to your experience, let me suggest that um, you might have been familiar with a debate concerning days. Marcus would say, you can do anything you want on Sunday. I mean, of course you should assemble with other believers and worship the Lord, but after that, You can lay back and read the newspaper, watch TV, or enjoy a good football game. Joseph would say, Oh, no. Sunday is a holy day unto the Lord. We should go to church and rest and read our Bibles and pray. You shouldn't do anything like watch TV or even read the newspaper. That's not a far-fetched idea, you know. There are people today, I mean in the latter part of the 20th century, who would say that you should not read a newspaper on Sunday. When I was in seminary, I had a Greek professor named S. Lewis Johnson. He studied in Scotland. And he tells of speaking in a church and then being invited to the home of some folks after the service. When he got to their home, the man of the house said to him, Do you object to reading the paper on Sunday? Dr. Johnson said, No. So the man then walked over to his sofa, lifted up the cushion, and pulled the Sunday paper out. (laughs) And he said, There are brethren in our assembly who would object. So I hide it under the cushion in case one of them drops by. Unexpectedly. You haven't had any encounters with that one. Imagine what would happen if Marcus had served wine when he invited Joseph over for dinner. Marcus would say, Now, it's okay to drink. As long as you don't get drunk, Joseph would be a staunch teetotaler. Now, I have a question. If you had been invited to dinner, and if you had witnessed those two discussing things like diet and days and drink, what would you have said to them? What would you say to two Christians who were having a dispute over doubtful things? Well, the scripture has a great deal to say two very large portions of Scripture in the New Testament are written just to tell us how to handle doubtful things. One of them is in 1st Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 and the other is Romans chapters 14 and 15. I would like for us to look today at one of the passages in Romans 14. Will you turn with me to Romans chapter 14 And I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 says this. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be persuaded or fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and arose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. In the book of Romans, Paul got to a, major point in the book, where he said that we were to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. He then immediately plunged into a discussion of love. There is a sense, in my opinion, in which love is the topic beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, all the way into chapter 15. At any rate, when he comes to chapter 14, verse 1, he introduces the problem of doubtful things. He has several things to say. The first 13 verses of chapter 14 only gives us the first thing he has to say. There are several other things he teaches beyond this. But the first thing he says is in these first 13 verses of the 14th chapter. These verses can be divided into two basic parts. First he gives us a response that we are to have to the subject in general that's in verses 1 through 3 then he spends the rest of this portion giving us the reason we ought to have that response so I want us to look first at the response we are to have and secondly the reason for it look at verse 1 he says receive one who is weak in the faith but not to disputes over doubtful things now the response we are to have is that we are to receive one who is weak in the faith. Notice, that's written from the viewpoint of the strong brother, implying, at least, that perhaps the majority of the believers at Rome were strong. So addressing them, Paul says, receive one who is weak in the faith the word receive means accept him as a brother in verse 3 it says for God has received him God has accepted him and you are to do the same what you are not to do according to verse 1 is dispute over doubtful things the word translated dispute means to judge or To quarrel. If there comes along a brother Paul calls weak, you are to receive him as a brother, you are to accept him just like God does, and you are not to judge him, and you are not to quarrel with him. In short, receiving, do not reject him. That's the basic response concerning doubtful things. Now that, of course, just raises all kinds of questions, like, who is the strong brother? Who is the weak brother? And whatever do you mean by a doubtful thing? The next couple of verses, verses 2 and 3, explain those things. For example, verse 2 says, "...for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables." Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Now these two verses explain to us at least who the strong brother is and the weak brother. Keep in mind, both have trusted Jesus Christ, both know the Lord. The strong brother has believed what God has said about his son, Jesus Christ. He has believed that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh who died for sin and arose from the dead. He also has believed other things God has said, like first Timothy four four, that says you can eat anything you wish, provided you receive it with thanksgiving. Thus Romans fourteen two says for one believes he may eat all things. That is the stronger brother. He understands and believes that in Christ he has the freedom to eat anything. The Old Testament made distinctions between clean and unclean food. The strong brother understands that now that Christ has come, those distinctions have been done away. And as a believer, you may eat anything. Translated, You can eat bacon for breakfast and pork for dinner. You can have pork chops and bacon. The stronger brother believes that. The weaker brother says, I eat only vegetables. Now, he is a brother, so he has believed everything the Bible says about Jesus Christ, at least pertaining to salvation. He believes that Jesus is God in the flesh who died and arose from the dead. He's a Christian in the biblical sense of the term. But he's weak when it comes to other statements the Bible has made. He's not sure about eating meat at all. He has restricted himself to veggies. Now, I think it is critical that we understand who the weak brother is. So I'm going to pause here for a moment. And suggest that you put your finger in Romans chapter fourteen, and you turn to First Corinthians chapter eight. I think that passage explains in detail who the weaker brother is. It is at this point I would suggest you take a note or two. Let me give you a threefold description of a weaker brother. First Corinthians chapter eight, verse seven says, "However, There is not in everyone that knowledge. I'm not going to take the time to go through the whole context, but suffice it to say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul explains that the weaker brother lacks knowledge. That's the first and foremost characteristic of a weaker brother. He does not comprehend that in Christ, He has certain freedoms. He lacks knowledge. But there is more. Look at verse 10. And because of your knowledge, I'm sorry, that's verse 11. Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? All right verse 10 and again in verse 12 but when you thus sin against the brother you wound their conscience and you sin against Christ he lacks knowledge and because he lacks knowledge secondly he has an overly sensitive conscience his conscience condemns what scripture permits the scripture would permit eating meat he has an overscrupulous conscience that condemns him for eating meat and he has decided he shouldn't. So first, he lacks knowledge. Secondly, he has an overly sensitive conscience. Thirdly, he has a weak will. Go back to verse 10. When he sees someone with knowledge eating meat in the idol's temple, he will be encouraged to eat the meat and will do it Though he thinks it is wrong, when he sees someone else do it, he will do it. Which means that he can be influenced to act contrary to his conscience. Now those three things, I think, sum up what a weaker brother is, as well as anything I have ever seen. He lacks knowledge, particularly concerning freedom in Christ. He has an overly sensitive conscience, but he has a weak will. The weaker brother is a brother, but he has a problem understanding and believing other things God has said, like what about eating meat? Now, I think it is important that we understand the difference between the weaker brother in Scripture and the so-called legalistic brother today. The weaker brother is, by the very nature of the case, receptive. If anything, he's too receptive. He believes something is wrong, but he's weak, and when he sees someone else do it, he does it. He's too receptive to those stimuli. The legalistic brother, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. He thinks something is wrong, and he's decided it's wrong for him and everybody else in the entire world. He has decided that what he thinks is wrong is wrong for every believer. Consequently, he is rigid, unwavering, immovable, self-righteous, and judgmental. The legalistic brother of today is not the weak brother of the first century. The weak brother caves in. The legalistic brother criticizes. And those are two entirely different situations. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 14. He is simply saying that there are weaker brothers who eat only vegetables. They have a conscience, so to speak, concerning eating meat. Paul's statement in Romans 14, 3 is, let not him who eats, that is the stronger brother, despise him who does not eat. Don't judge him. Don't hold him in contempt. Receive him. On the other hand, he says, verse 3, And let not him who does not eat, that is the weaker brother, judge him who eats. God has received him as well. So the point of these first three verses is that we are to receive without judging. We are not to set at naught or look with contempt on a brother who has a difference with us over a doubtful thing. One other little word, perhaps I ought to explain the doubtful thing. By doubtful thing, the scripture is talking about any moral, non-ethical issue. Some things in the scripture are clearly wrong. Other things are sometimes wrong and sometimes not. Not everything is black and white. Some things are gray. And what Paul is teaching in this passage, if you are a believer that thinks you can do these things, fine, do them. But don't judge a brother who doesn't. And if you are a weaker brother who thinks it is wrong, don't judge the brother who does it. The issue the response, first and foremost, is that if a person has trusted Jesus Christ, we are to receive that individual. A little girl went to visit her grandparents. They were what we would call weaker brethren. They believed that Sunday was the holy day, that you should not watch television play games you must walk and not run she spent the afternoon at their house and when grandpa fell off to sleep she asked could i walk to the gate and grandmother gave permission so the little girl started walking down the lane and as she came past the pasture she saw the donkey he had his head bowed and his eyes closed. And she peered through the fence and said, You got religion too, huh? (laughs) Now let's suppose that those folks were members of your church and your daughter went to their house. They came to your church. What would be your response? I'm going to tell you what I think would be the response of many, many Christians. They would sort of look down their nose at them, thinking they're woefully out of date. And their basic attitude would be, they just don't fit in here. Now, isn't that what we do? Paul says, here's the response. When there is a dispute Or a doubt about something that the scripture isn't clear about. Or the scripture allows freedom concerning. The one response is don't judge them. Receive them as brethren. Now why does he say that? Beginning at verse 4 and going down to the end of the chapter. Paul explains why we should have that response. And he does so by asking two questions. The first question is in verse 4. And the second question is in verse 10. Look at verse 4. He says, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand. For God is able to make him stand. He says, look. You ought not judge another for the simple reason that that person you are judging is another man's servant. The word rendered servant here is the word slave. And in the first century, the slave was accountable solely and only to his owner and master. What these verses are telling us, is that every believer is viewed as a servant of God to whom he is accountable. So he simply asks, who are you to judge another man's servant? For you to judge someone else is like you judging someone else's household servant. And who are you to do that? Paul explains, to his own master he stands or falls. It's his master's job to judge. Only he uses the word stands or falls. And notice he asks in the last part of verse, or says in the last part of verse 4, Indeed, he will be made to stand. He takes a very optimistic view that as far as his master is concerned, he will stand. Now, what do you mean by all of this? Well, he goes on to explain. Verse 5, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. He is simply saying in these verses, Some observe or esteem one day, and the other treats everybody alike. But the issue is that it's none of your business because they are someone else's servant. Now, there's been a great dispute throughout church history as to what Paul had in mind when he talked about observing days. There are two basic views. One is that some Christians observe days of abstinence, like fasting the second view is that he has in mind observing saturday versus sunday in light of what paul says elsewhere about the sabbath i think it would be very strange that he here would be allowing you to observe it i suspect then that what he's talking about is that some pick out a day and say i want to observe this day to the lord and say abstaining from anything and practicing something like fasting and the other says, Oh, every day's alike. Paul's point is that isn't the issue. And he introduces the diet question again. Days and diets are not the issue. As he explains in these verses, the issue is doing it unto the Lord, giving thanks for whatever it is that you do. So he says in verse 6, He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, to the Lord, he who uh, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. So just notice how many times he says in verse 6, the issue is, He is another man's servant, and if he does it to the Lord, then that's his business and his master's. Now, he again explains all of this in verses 7 to 9. Notice the little word for at the beginning of verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's for to this end christ died and arose and lived again that he might be lord of both the dead and the living His point is simply this every christian is the lord's servant what he does as unto the lord is his business jesus lived and died and arose so that he may be lord of all and whether we are alive or whether we are dead He is the Lord, and we are His servants, and it is none of our business. I think it's interesting. He both lived and died and arose that uh, He might be Lord. Philippians chapter 2, He came as a servant. He died, He arose, and then He was declared to be the Lord of all. In a sense, before the crucifixion, He came as a servant. After the crucifixion, he was indeed Lord. So Paul is arguing that uh, every believer is the Lord's servant. He is the master. The believer is the servant. And so the question in verse 4 is who are you to judge another man's servant? Jesus is the rightful master. The believer is his servant. And who are you to interfere in that relationship he then asked a second question to explain why you should have this response he says in verse 10 and why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt to your brother for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ now in verses 4 to 9 he has explained that Believers are the servants of God and of Jesus Christ. Implied in that is they are accountable to him. Now he takes that thought and expands it. And the whole point of verses 10 to 13 is that every believer will have to give an account of himself to the Lord. He says that very clearly. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. To support that, he quotes Isaiah forty-five twenty-three, verse 11, as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Now that verse in Isaiah is simply teaching that God judges everybody. Paul is using that verse and applying it to Christians and saying, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. His conclusion is in verse 12. So then, each of us shall give an account of himself to the Lord. This passage is clearly teaching that God will judge all men, including all believers, and that believers have to give an account of themselves and all that they do to the Lord. And the context includes what they eat, what they drink, and what days they observe. Now let me clarify. Put your finger in John, uh, Romans chapter 13 for a second and turn to John chapter 5. There's something that is confusing to some that needs to be clarified at this point. John chapter 5, verse 24 says this, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Now, there is a promise in the Word of God that if you've trusted Jesus Christ, you will never be judged. And you turn to Romans chapter 14, and it says, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what's going on? Well, I believe the New Testament teaches... That if you have trusted Jesus Christ, your eternal destiny is settled, sealed, and secure. The issue of heaven and hell will never be brought up. That is a settled issue. In that sense, you have passed from death to life and you will never be judged. All those who have not trusted Christ will stand before the judgment called the great white throne judgment. But the Bible also teaches that even though you've trusted Jesus Christ and you will not be judged in in the sense of going to heaven or hell, you will, as a believer, have to give an account to the Lord for every deed done in the body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You will have to give an account of all that you've done You are the Lord's servant once you've trusted Christ. You are His and you will give an account to Him for every deed done in the body. Now, I don't think the issue in this judgment is heaven or hell. I think that's a settled issue for those who've trusted Christ. But I most assuredly believe that the New Testament teaches that every believer is accountable to God and will stand before God in a day of judgment call the judgment seat of Christ, and you will and I will give an account of everything we have ever done. That is precisely what Paul is teaching in this passage. Now he's using that to say, then who are you to judge another Christian? It's not your place to judge. God is the judge. And every believer will give an account so you don't worry about it. The conclusion is stated very simply and very clearly in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Notice, notice he says in verse 13, let us not judge one another anymore, But rather, and the text that I'm reading from says, resolve this. It's the same word translated judge in the same verse. What Paul is saying is this. Let us don't judge one another. You want to judge something? I'll give you something to judge. Don't put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in a brother's way. Now he takes up that thought and he develops it in the rest of chapter 14 which we will do in our next study of the book of Romans. But for right now, I want you to see that what he is saying in the first 13 verses is receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Receive him as a brother and don't judge him. Why not? Because he is someone else's servant and he will give an account To his master. So, this passage is simply teaching that believers should not judge one another concerning doubtful things because all believers belong to the Lord and all believers will give an account to him at the judgment seat of Christ. Let me conclude by spelling out three great pertinent truths this passage teaches. Number one, there are doubtful things. As I said a moment ago, some things are black, some things are white, and some things are gray. I have known many Christians who wanted to make the gray black. The Bible teaches there are doubtful things. You need to understand that and reckon with it. There are Christians who want to make the gray black and they do so by saying something like, if it's doubtful, it's dirty, so don't. You ever heard that? There's a doubt, don't. That's to make an absolute out of something that is relative. It doesn't always follow. If there's a doubt, don't. There's a young man about to put on a shirt, and he said to his mother, is this shirt clean? And she immediately said no. She said, get another one. So he got another shirt, and he was on his way out of the door before he realized his mother hadn't looked at the shirt that she said don't put on. And so he said, Mother, how did you know that first shirt was dirty? She said, if it had been clean, you would have known it. If there's a doubt, it's dirty. Don't put it on. Now, the simple reality is, if it is doubtful, it is just that. It is doubtful. If there is no place in your thinking for doubtful things, if there's no category in your head for doubtful things, you are simply not thinking biblically. This passage teaches there are doubtful things over which sincere and godly Christians differ. Secondly, this passage teaches that God will judge believers. Matter of fact, I think for many years of my Christian life I was laboring under the delusion that at the judgment seat of Christ all that would happen is that my works would be judged and I would be rewarded. The Bible does teach that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But it was this very passage that drove me to my knees in the hands of another preacher, when he insisted this passage teaches that you have to give an account for everything. I am not suggesting that your sins are going to be brought up and you are going to be punished for them. I believe that is a settled issue, that Christ died for my sins. They've been separated as far as the east is from the west. But I have to say to you, this passage teaches that I must give an account to God for everything I do. And Second Corinthians chapter 5 states it in the strongest possible terms. Terms, frankly, that make me nervous. It says we must give an account for everything done in the body, whether good or evil. I don't like this truth. I don't like to think about it, and I certainly don't like to preach it. But the simple reality is it's in the book, and you need to know it. Jesus said we'd give an account for every idle word. And I think the simple reality is we take that judgment entirely too lightly. Every one of us who know Jesus Christ will stand before God, and we will give an account. John says in his first epistle, therefore it is imperative that you abide in Christ that you not be ashamed when he gets back here. I think all of us to some degree will hang our heads in shame at some of the things we've done since we've trusted Jesus Christ. Thirdly, this passage teaches it is the point of the passage that god is going to judge and therefore we should not it's stated as simply and as clearly as it can possibly be said in romans 14:13 therefore let us not judge one another any more now let me clarify There are passages that say that we are to judge. There are things we are to judge. I think in the case of the book of Romans, in chapter 13, he gives us things we have the right to judge. He says in chapter 13, O no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not cover, covet. If there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you want to judge something, that is the passage to go to. God gives us absolutes for our conduct, and he says, don't do these things. And if a believer does them, we, as other believers, have every right to judge that kind of conduct. And First Corinthians chapter 5 is an illustration. But beyond that, there is a whole host of things that comes under the category of doubtful things, and we have no right to judge in those areas. And that's Romans chapter 14. If it is gray, if it is doubtful, if the Scripture is not clear, if the Scripture gives freedom, I as a Christian have no right to judge another about what he decides to do before his God. That's between him and the Lord. If there is any message that needs to be screamed from the housetops in the church of Jesus Christ in America today, it's that we need to stop judging one another. Somebody has suggested the favorite indoor sport of Christians is that we want to change one another. Stop it. That is precisely what this passage says. Now, in the first century, the specifics were feasts and festivals and food and diets and days. Today, what is it? The, uh, The list is endless. Let me mention a couple. I think I'd put at the top of the list the way we spend our money. You ever been judged about the way you spend your money? Did you ever come into a small inheritance and decide to put a swimming pool in your backyard? Somebody came along and said, do you know our missions fund is low, brother? Now, very frankly, I think the Bible teaches you ought to honor the Lord with your money. But very frankly, what you do with your money is your business. You ever judged anybody by the way they spent their money? Let me give you one that is a particular grief to me. If I have seen this once, I have seen it 5,000 million times in the last 30 years. You want to find out where people will judge one another on some area that you don't have clear scripture? It's how to rear your children. Have you ever been judged for the way you were rearing your children? Have you ever judged somebody else for the way they reared theirs? <laughs> Just wait till they get to be teenagers and you decide for some reason known only to you and your family what you decided to do with one of your teenagers. Just watch the Christians devour you because they didn't agree with the way you raised your kids. Frankly. I've seen parents do all kinds of things I thought was wrong. But short of violating some biblical scripture, frankly, it's none of my business. So I've tried to keep my nose out of that one, though I haven't always succeeded. (laughs) Now what I'm telling you is that we are all guilty of this one. We're all guilty of judging one another. And the Bible says when it comes to doubtful, debatable things, cease and desist. And I've only begun. The list goes from A to Z. The modern list includes alcohol, bingo, cards, dancing, eating pork, football on Sunday, going to movies, Halloween, insurance, jeans, kissing, lodges, makeup, newspapers on Sunday, opera. Pants, rock music, smoking, TV, wine, X rated movies, and zippers instead of buttons. Am I coming through? The Bible teaches that in the area of doubtful things, we are not to judge one another for the simple reason. God is our judge, and when you judge someone else, you are taking the place of God. One commentator has said, These questions are solemnly pertinent because we shall all, strong and weak alike, stand before the judgment seat of Christ or God the right and wrong in a brother's conduct should be determined at that bar and not by individual opinion. In that solemn tribunal, no man will judge his own case, much less his brother's. Let's pray. Frankly, there ought to be a lot of repentance in all of our hearts. We need to learn to receive one another, accept one another, not judge one another, unless we have a clear biblical imperative to do so. Father, forgive us, for we have judged one another and rejected one another too much. Teach us to receive one another, to encourage one another, to build one another up in the most holy faith, so that we may more and more become conformed to the image of your Son, knowing that you will take care of the rest. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.